in the world of the 24-hour news cycle, where every story is given the same amount of urgency and magnitude. One podcast dares to say, uh, hold on just a second. This week and every week, we look back at the headlines, moments, and trends from six months ago, and we ask our panel, let's process this. I'm your host, Chris Pappas. Hello, hello, dear listeners, and welcome to the very first episode of Let's Process This. I am your host, Chris Pappas. I am joined today by two fantastic guests, and I'm going to take a moment here to introduce. The first one is J.W. Crump, a comedian who has been featured on the NBC Scene Selection Showcase, the MTC Southern Comedy Showcase, an author for the best television pilot that you've never seen, Ian owes you. And of course, he ran the hit improv show, Gas Station Horror. Welcome to the podcast, J.W. Crump. I feel like there should be like a, a, a sound effects of just people applauding. Yes, absolutely. That other voice you're hearing is John Foster, the writer, producer, and also the artistic director of Thicket and Thistle, an actor, musician, musical comedy writing team. His major accomplishments include writing and producing a feature film with a budget of only $17,000, now available on Amazon. We'll let you plug that at the end of the show. Learning how to cook the perfect pizza and graduating from acting school with Jake from State Farm, which is good to know because maybe we can have him on our next episode. Uh, spoiler alert, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's dead. Terrible insurance. <laughs> yeah. Oh. There was one he's, fateful he's night in the this. hot tub in Breckenridge, and it just ended there. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, this week and every week, we ask our guests to bring in a news story for a segment that I am calling Chronically Online. That is a term that I have heard multiple times this week when procrastinating to write the script for this very show. I asked our two guests to come in with a headline topic or trend from their side of the algorithm. And since the algorithm knows us better than we know ourselves, this should give us a real peek into our guests' lives. We'll start with you, JW. What did you find? from your side of the algorithm. Mine comes from TikTok, which is the best of all the algorithms in terms of what it usually serves me, which is a lot of rescue kitten footage and then resin craft. But sometimes I get news. And I don't know if y'all have heard of this phenomenon of reputation scavenging. It's kind of what's in the discourse right now. And essentially, right now it's in the beauty community, a community I don't really follow. So it's fun to peek in to this but apparently there was someone named Michaela who did a whole branded content thing where Michaela wore false eyelashes and implied that she wasn't for like a a mascara review and then that caused all these folks to call her out to you know say that they were lying etc and then the reputation scavenging came from other beauty influencers who then did their own reviews of the product to be all like, see, you can trust me. My review's the real one. It's the honest one. And so it started this whole discourse around whenever the phenomenon of whenever an influencer or anyone online does something that gives them some amount of disgrace amongst their following, that other people use that as a jumping off point to try to help their own personal reputation. And I found the idea of this fascinating that any people are just waiting for someone else to mess up to then help their own Q score. And then the brand doesn't care because now there's just a bunch of people reviewing this product for free. 
that's wild. But also, oh gosh, here comes a millennial statement, kind of peak capitalism. Um, (laughs) Just waiting for somebody else to fail. What was its term called again? Reputation scavenging. The person who is claiming to coin this, I want to give them the credit it's a user named their username looks like it's unlucky pickle. George. <laughs> yeah <laughs> unlucky pickle with a one in the pickle so i believe that's the user that's doing it and she's claiming i think to have coined the phrase reputation scavenging though i do not know if they're the first one to do it well speaking of unlucky pickle and reputation sca- scavenging definitely employ this in my alt twitter profile so like it's actually pretty useful, I would say. Do you really? So you you wait for for other alt twitters to make to make bad statements, and then yeah, yeah, and then I come in and be like, nope, I wear this underwear better, <laughs> and smile. <laughs> Honestly, it's fascinating to think of reputation as a currency, though. Yeah, that you're only as good if you're someone who, like in the beauty community, who again I don't follow, but I assume a big part of what they do is review products and test out stuff. That you're only as good as how much your followers believe in your reviews this is going to become a problem more and more as we are all individually seen as kind of like a channel of of content as opposed to like artists and makers right so it's kind of like your reputation somebody who is a critic somebody who gave reviews you would go you'd be going through a third party to put out your review now you are the reviewer you are the content you are the star so if all of your chips are in this one place and that goes what else do you have i think also it does remind me though even though people have obviously commodified it by being a an influencer and being someone who does influence purchasing i do think of it like on a very micro level i have friends that are in certain spaces that i trust their opinion on because i know okay my friend bill is an expert in board games so when bill posts i love this new board game i'm like oh that might be of interest to me and i guess i've never thought of myself as being i don't follow a lot of influencers and i've never thought of myself as being influenced actively but i'm like i am influenced every day by my friends so if i did follow someone who makes it their whole job to review this stuff i would be influenced by them and that's why the whole thing of they got to feel like they're your friend it all like started making more sense to me because i was always like do they need to feel like your friend what if, if the review's good who cares now i'm reconsidering that because of how this person this user um explained this whole reputation scavenging concept to me i'm curious to hear because like i feel like that so much of like a person's brand if they're doing like reviews like product reviews it's all about trust and like can i trust this person i mean the other alternative is that like you're just like watching someone who's like clearly an idiot doing something stupid a couple of weeks ago i fell for uh somebody was like if you want to make crispier bacon just do this and add water to the pan and i was like huh i never heard that i'll try it spoiler alert it doesn't work but i was like huh that re- I, that, that was smoke yeah it wasn't a reviewer at all it was just some idiot on tiktok being like i know what i'm gonna do and so like oh this is clearly like a joke account now to me and so it's funny to think that like i'm or i should say i'm curious rather what is this girl doing now like did she lose a bunch of followers or did people just forget it because it's like so there's so much of it I didn't follow it too closely, but I do remember that one of the other things that I think hurt this 
particular original influencer that was using the false eyelashes to bolster the claims of this mascara or whatever product. I keep saying mascara. I think that was the product. Mm -hmm. I think she started going into comments that were saying, but you're wearing false eyelashes and defending it. And I think that was even worse is that all of a sudden she became desperate to defend herself. So then it was even worse when she was found out to definitely i think she admitted eventually like okay i was lying it was this but i was just doing it because i always wear false eyelashes so why wouldn't i for this product i was like yeah i think you should have just said that in the original review right absolutely i think it's why a lot of influencers i'm seeing review nows for products where the people preface so much that they're like i know this only works for me this is this i'm like i think people are really trying to keep up the trust that you're talking about by laying out a lot more groundwork than people used to think was necessary yeah i'm hearing that a lot not just on not just kind of in in reviews but just really in podcasts in general where people are just being like i want to make it abundantly clear that the statement that i'm about to make is based on my personal experience but it's like everyone has to say that every time Mm -hmm. john foster how about you what what did you find on your side of the algorithm as you noted, I am a producer. I am, I like live in the filming, the line producing, the casting, like all of that stuff is like my bread and butter these days. And something that I am often told is like, hey, you made a great five minute video, but can you make it a minute and a half? And I'm like sitting here like, well, what the hell can I cut? This is like five minutes of pure gold. And if I cut anything, I start losing things. And a franchise near and dear to my heart and also the only consistent thing in my algorithm is RuPaul's Drag Race. And so I want to bring to you two homosexuals this conversation about the new version of Drag Race, because I'm also curious maybe to see what we say about it six months from now maybe when we're thinking like kind of doing like a rewind and looking back at the beginning because we're at the beginning of the season and for the listeners that are not uh necessarily up to speed drag race moved from vh1 slash paramount into straight mtv and with that channel jump they went from doing 90 minute episodes down to 60 minute episodes which is really 40 minutes because of the long ass commercials that mtv has tacked on to drag race content And with this many contestants on this season, it will be six months before the finale. So this makes sense. So so what we're getting this season is a much more truncated, not as fully fleshed version, I think, of Drag Race. And so I first wanted to get just kind of like, I'm curious, just your offhanded opinions on like, is this new trimmed down version like enjoyable? Is there something that I'm not seeing? Are we all furious? Are we liking the new? I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I'll jump in with a controversial but brave statement. That's what we're here for. Personally, I think the hour long episodes will help with the drag race fatigue, especially once we get into the kind of like top five top six because Mm. those hour and a half episodes really started to drag and it got to the point for me where the penultimate episode was always much more exciting than the finale Mm -hmm. and i think we're now going back to hour-long episodes well it's actually really going from you know 45 minutes to an hour versus an hour versus 90 minutes, a little bit more of the mystique will be there. Mm. Uh, and I might have gotten bored and started rewatching season two the other day. And let me tell you, it's an hour. 
It's an hour and every moment, every moment of that season two premiere, it's just one iconic moment after another and it doesn't stop. But I also think that at season two, I'm curious, like we didn't have this, like the well-defined segments that like Drag Race Now after 15 seasons has right of like the queens showing up at the beginning of the episode and mourning the loss of the person who was just eliminated and then like the next day it's a new day in the workroom and then like the mini challenge or the the first off the the room mail the uh, the it reminds me of that the the character in power rangers where like at the beginning of the episode they go to wherever they're like all meet up and there's that big zordon zordon as i said zorba i was like the zordon of him being like hi i am you know i am the all-powerful and this is what you're going to be doing this episode the Zordon moment and then the mini challenge and then you have like the reactions post mini challenge and then how that it's going to affect the maxi challenge and then you see it you know like there's just like so many parts of this formula that I feel like in the um in the recent episode or the re this season has been cut and I'm curious to see how it would compare to like season two is it just like truncated or cut I have an opinion that I think it really the difference people are feeling are the reason and the way that we consume this particular TV show. A lot of people consume Drag Race at bars, with friends, people are talking. There's a lot of parts of the show, the runway, the like private d judge discussion, all that stuff where most of the time, if you're in a group, people are gently talking over or not so gently talking over. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the show is edited in a way that it does not matter. You are not missing anything. I watched the first couple episodes in a group and they did feel short. I watched one episode, the most recent one, by myself, and it did not feel short at all. And that's because I normally do fast forward through some of the lesser interesting parts when it's an hour and a half long like the private judging stuff that i usually don't feel like i get much out of i love that insight into your viewing of drag race because my i am like almost always in like a holy place where there is like less than five people and all five of those people are my friends <laughs> and i would like i would lose my shit if i was like in a bar because i'd be like guys i can't hear <laughs> well that's the th but i think it, it's this particular show is consumed like a lot of people consume major league sports yeah yeah so you don't need to listen to every moment of that's a sport, so true uh, you know so i think that shortening the episodes unfortunately shows a fundamental misunderstanding on the network's part mm -hmm. of how people consume this p particular program. Now, obviously part of that conversation is also, what if they put the 30 minute untucked episode right afterwards? And then it's just basically another hour and a half episode. They should have done that. We, we probably don't need to get in the discussion. Plenty of people have <laughs> talked about. There's, there's, there's a, there's a lot of other discourse happening. So, <laughs> yeah. the, listeners can, the listeners can Google that. I do think it's worth noting though, that there are not a lot of 90 minute shows. Mm -hmm. It's not something that's mm -hmm. typical. Um, the only other one that I can think of is the challenge. Some episodes of big brother are longer. Some good episodes like of survivor, like the big ones. It really is just reality yeah. television. Yeah. And so, I'm surprised. I think the best of both worlds, and I'm surprised that it didn't happen because it's on MTV. Mm -hmm. MTV with the challenge early in the season, their 90 minute episodes. About halfway through, they they switched to 60 minute episodes. So smart. And I think they should have done the same thing because then it achieves what's what Chris described is there's not fatigue at the end when they just don't have enough contestants and footage to fill out an episode. But early on, you don't feel like 
it's blasting by when you have such a big cast. And I'm I'm surprised that didn't happen because no one complained about this the first night when there was two hour-long episodes in a row and it was two hours worth of it. I didn't hear a peep from people. Mm-hmm. And it's because it felt mm-hmm. like two hours of the program. Yeah, I think that my only other piece that I want to say about this is that something that you said, JW, is so true that like people, a lot of people consume drag race like they do baseball games or like, you know, what other other sports reference we can throw in. I watch it like I watch hockey, almost the exact same. Yeah, I watch hockey all the time. And um, the the funny thing, uh, because I'm such like a, a, a nerd with numbers, especially like coming from like the producer background of like understanding like what like what decisions are made that like really affect viewership. And one of the interesting stats that I discovered while I was like doing a little bit of research on this is that the numbers for Drag Race uh, went up exponentially during COVID. And I was like, why, like, is it just because a lot more people were loving on drag? And it's like, no, it's just like, no one was congregating together to watch it. It was a bunch of individual people that aren't at a bar anymore. And so that's why those numbers are a lot higher than they were at the beginning of the season, which I thought was a fascinating story. No, it's interesting to think about how during the pandemic, viewership of anything changed. And that mm-hmm. is a fascinating one. I didn't even consider that. But sports mm-hmm. are, I'm sure, were the same way. I bet a lot of ratings for sports the, went up. The same amount of eyeballs are on there, just not the same amount of televisions. And capitalism, baby, only cares about this TV. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Welcome back. We're going to head on into our first topic of the evening. I was looking back at my calendar for this date that the story takes place on. And here's the deal. It was a wild day for me. I was driving down the Rockefeller Jr. Memorial Highway that connects Yellowstone to the Grand Tetons. And we saw a bunch of cars pulled off on the side of the road. And that usually means one thing, which is an animal sighting. So we pulled over and we looked across the Elk Reserve and we saw... A mama grizzly bear with two cubs like running through the field. And it was a like a very exciting peak moment of my summer. And then we got to the hotel and I saw what was happening in the queer world back on the East Coast. And that was the day that who had declared the monkeypox a global health emergency. So our first topic <laughs> almost six months ago. Who declares the monkeypox? a global health emergency, and Chris saw a grizzly bear. So, two very important, cool things. I gotta say, Chris, when you were setting up that story, I thought that you were going to say, and we pulled over and we saw a monkey crossing the road. <laughs> Just biting nope. all the gays. <laughs> not on this not on this trip. I was gonna make a similar yeah. joke where I was like, ironically, I had to get my monkey pox shot because of a bear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> perfect content (laughs) so i've got i've got two people who uh are part of the lgbtqia plus community here with me that was a wild this was a wild summer it was good for two years and all of a sudden a very specific pandemic came right for our community and it was kind of met with a bit of a shrug from the outside world i'd say can i say that it is so bizarre to me how like this feels like it was so long ago it feels like like i don't like i i don't know if it's just kind of like to me is clustered in with like the like early stages of like covid pandemic because that's definitely what it felt like for me once like the every like the awareness around monkey park started spreading and it's crazy to think that like this literally was the one thing that dictated 
all of my summer activities. I stopped going to circuit parties. I like definitely stopped hooking up with lots of people. I became monogamous for the first time in my life. Thank God that ended. I was about to say, so it made you better? Uh, no! <laughs> I was about to say, I also technically was all of those things, but the change didn't happen. <laughs> I think he was located in a county with more sheep than people. Uh, you know, I, I did monkeypox the best, I would say. I, I, I agree with you, though, Foster, that it does feel like this was both forever ago, but also I'm looking down and there's the faintest, faintest... The little, little shell little place where if only I can see where that monkeypox vaccine second dose happened. Mm -hmm. I think the inter most interesting thing about it that I recall was that early on, pre-people able to get the vaccine, was the weird mystery and enigmas surrounding your friends, colleagues, and acquaintances who definitely contracted it, but because there was such a heavy stigma placed on it, even within our own community, mm. people were extremely, and maybe rightfully, cagey and mysterious about what happened. All of a sudden, people would be like, hey, I can't hang out for 10 days, and we're used to that being a COVID thing, but mm -hmm. all of us are like, but aren't you vaccinated and boosted? And like, I don't think it's 10 days anymore. And then they'd be like, no, but I have another health concern. I remember having a conversation with someone and being like, I have to delay our lunch because I have a health concern that I need to deal with. Mm. And I have multiple friends now who got it who still have like visible scars. Like again, right. not ones that you would necessarily look at them and see like immediately. But when they point it out, you're like, yeah, that's probably a permanent scar that you're going to have on your body in some way, in some level of faintness. For the rest of your life but i i don't know about y'all but i personally knew three people that had it and they all were the same level of unwilling to name what it was really interesting yeah i never actually until it was completely done i never heard any of these three individuals who have differing levels of closeness with say out loud what it was and even though it's very different and I want to be very conscientious of drawing comparisons, mm -hmm. I understand why some folks were comparing it to HIV AIDS in that way. That it totally. did feel like it was a, it was being called a gay disease for gays. There was a stigma around getting it. That stigma was about sexual promiscuity and mm -hmm. the, and we'll talk about more the, the hilarious side of sexual promiscuity which is how a lot of people including myself had to gently lie to be able to get the vaccine because they're like you need to have sex three different people in 14 days and i was like okay <laughs> well i totally have <laughs> yeah this is a, a conversation i had to have a with a uh a heterosexual co-worker of mine i was like oh yeah like once i get back i'm gonna have to get the monkeypox vaccination he was mm. like ha that's funny i was like no really and he was like what what why and i and it was like a moment where i was like oh you genuinely don't know you know you're you're a straight man who lives in utah so i sent him like the art basically just like an article being like this is what's happening he's like oh my god go get that vaccination you slut i had family members who would like who I mentioned, you know, like, oh yeah, I'm just trying to get this monkeypox vaccine. And they're like, what, why would you need that? And then I'm like, I'm not about to explain to my family that I'm having, or like have them look up like, well, how do you qualify to get a monkeypox vaccine? You have to have sex with three people in 14 days. It's like, well, now my family knows that that's my uh, after dinner activity on Tuesdays. Because on Friday we and watch again, Track Race. we were coming at it from very different perspectives because I was like, three different people? <laughs> <laughs> 
I guess if you count every day in the year so far. Do both hands count as two people? Because <laughs> if so, it's still only one. <laughs> I'm curious to hear your all's um, experiences getting the vaccines. Like, what was that? like for for because i have a feeling that all three of us have moderately different experiences and so i want to share mine and i'm curious to hear yours i got mine in the south carolina department of health and i was chit-chatting with the guy next to me and i was like oh yeah this is like you know i have friends in new york who are like on wait list to get this and the guy here was like oh i just called i was like i know me too so it was just <laughs> like in South Carolina, you just called and they just gave it to you. Yeah, it was like the gay lotto trying to like, I like stayed up or, or not stayed up. It was because it was like 6 p.m. Like me and my boyfriend, like we're sitting on the bed and like I had a computer and my phone and he had the same and we were just like refreshing, trying to get an appointment. What was funny is I had someone when COVID vaccines were hard to get. I had someone who helped me get that appointment and I was able to help a friend get the monkeypox one. And I was like, oh, that was my little pay it forward moment that like <laughs> I got helped and now I got to help someone. My first one was like, it was in a nearby hospital. I got the appointment. I was lucky though, like currently at that time I was working from home so I could kind of do the ones I think were less popular in the middle of the day. I went, I got it. The first one was in my tricep. Mm-hmm. And it was a very, the only funny process about it was that it was that a day in New York where it was like above 100. And so everyone was dying, yeah. waiting yeah. in line, sweating so much and was so just like uncomfortable. So, and of course it was a lot of queer men. So uh, people's were basically wearing the sluttiest clothes you've ever seen. But part of it was just <laughs> the weather. And I was like, guys, this is not helping the stereotype right now. Not at all. Not at all. The second dose of it was at a place that it used to be just for COVID vaccines. That was then just for monkeypox vaccines. And it was, I got the appointment, showed up, but a lot of people, they were basically treating 50 people at a time. Mm. And it was very efficient. That was the one that um, leaves a little bit of a scar or at least the bubble. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what's funny is they were making them ad hoc. And so I did get to chat with my, the nurse that administered it. And I remember asking her because she talked about covid she's like i did covid too and i was like oh what's the difference and she just looks around she's like more shorts <laughs> and y'all the loudness of the howl that i left out because i all of, all of a sudden i was so comfortable i was like i was like girl you better believe <laughs> For our second story, the, the timing could not be more perfect <laughs> because six months ago, we were getting ready to take our weekend trip upstate mm -hmm. to everyone's favorite Hamlet and Cramdale. Mm -hmm. At mm -hmm. the same time we were planning that trip, the FBI was planning a very different trip, and that was a raid on former President Trump's Florida State Mar-a-Lago, uh, where over 300 classified records, which should have been in the hands of the National Archive, were retrieved. Now, it's totally possible that President Trump saw a national treasure and thought ever since Nick Cage stole the Constitution that the archives could not be trusted. But methinks there might be more to the story. Can you believe it has been six months since the well, we're not calling it the raid, the search of Mar-a-Lago. I'm just glad we didn't ever have to hear about classified documents again. There was just that and that's it. That's the funniest thing about doing these two stories together is that the monkeypox ones feels like it's completely done. Yeah. It happened, to Foster's point, it feels like it happened 80 years ago. 
Uh-huh. I when you sent that, I was like, "All oh, right, that was a big thing for a while." This is ongoing, and currently, as we're recording this, it feels like every week it's just a new Biden and then Pence. Everyone's got a classified <clears throat> document or two to where the joke is becoming. I also have classified documents. So it <laughs> tells me, it's unfortunate, but it tells me one of two things. One, this is a giant problem that Trump was the worst offender of, but also a lot of people are minor offenders of, and or it's not as big a deal as we think it should be. Yeah, that's that was my, like, when I'm asking myself, you know, the question of have we processed this? Like, is this, you know, my thought is like, there's always been classified document stories. Like that's one of the go-to red meats for either side because like we went really hard on Trump for for his documents, but like they went so hard on Hillary Clinton for her servers that were, it's just all about classified documents. Like every, I feel like all this, like all political fights, like at the end of the day, it's like, well, if you're out, if you're out of ammo, figure out what they've done with classified documents because they've probably done something shitty. And I feel like Americans are stupid enough to not understand what all the implications of that are and how minor or major they are. And, and just to say something as blanket as like classified documents, like people's red flags go off. Well, that, that is part of the problem is that it requires, oh my gosh, what the internet hates the most, which is a sense of nuance. I was going to say a nuance in the conversation. Yeah. Nuance in a conversation, <laughs> because when you look at the Biden and Pence documents, basically these, these like five documents were found in a, in a cupboard and they were immediately turned over to the National Archives and the FBI, whereas the FBI had to get a search warrant to go find the documents that were in Mar-a-Lago that were in his desk by his passport and by documents he looks at in theory, allegedly. And of course, one of my favorite moments was there was a great New York Times like headline that was like the biden case really complicates things with trump and then the next day the pence news dropped and i was like actually (laughs) this puts everything into context doesn't it like because it's like you can't both side it is you can't both sides this all of a sudden Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. because suddenly you have both the president the former president and the former vice president and the current president all on different uh spectrums of this issue the current president from when he was the vice president eight years ago four years ago whatever right six years ago i can do math (laughs) i think too and it it touches a little bit on what you said jonathan that i think we also and i'm including myself in this do not have a fundamental understanding of what can be and often is contained within a quote-unquote classified document Mm -hmm. and i assume that each and every individual unique snowflake of a classified document has different levels of stuff and how secure it needs to be because most things coming out of our government's white house are probably by necessity classified in some way shape or form but some might be melania's mashed potato recipe And some might be, you know, actual nuclear codes. Nuclear codes. Right, right, right. I don't know. I truly, I'm saying this, anyone listening, I am ignorant of what can be contained within that. And But my feeling, based on what I've read, is that so many things are considered classified documents that Mm -hmm. while you should turn over every single one of them that you have back to the government, the difference in... There's obviously a reason some are just in cupboards 
Right. Because they must just be like, yeah, I had to take this yeah. home and read it. Oh, and it wasn't a big deal, so I didn't think to return it right away. Mm-hmm. Can I say that in all of this, I think the real loser is the National Archives, literally and metaphorically. I don't understand how is it, y'all, when I get fired from a job, which has only happened once, or when I leave a job voluntarily, which has happened multiple times, that day, like that fucking minute that it hits 5 p.m., I lose access to everything everything like i cannot even like look at a previous gmail account much less any documents so i'm like how how is it that like my shitty ass startup (laughs) in 2014 figured it out and yet we still have like all this like data document leaks out of out of the national archives in the white house like what's the story wishbone well part part of the issue is the fact that it's not digitized Mm that we haven't that we haven't moved this stuff into the digital realm um and that they're still printing it off on paper and just you know sliding things around in folders here in our lord's year of 2023 and the national archives had to write a letter Mm. to all of the former presidents and vice presidents saying hey could you do us a big favor and double check your filing cabinets now they did not send a letter to jimmy carter because <laughs> the Presidential Records Act had not gone into action when he was president. So for all we know, Jimmy Carter's sitting on a bunch of secrets and it's totally legal for him to have them. Which Jimmy I think is <laughs> I hope so too. You know what? Release yeah. the tell all. I hope he's wallpapering the houses he builds <laughs> with classified government <laughs> documents. <laughs> all right, welcome back. We're heading into the final section of our show with our super secret topic. So our guests do not know what this next topic is going to be about, so I've selected it from a headline story or trend from six months ago. Capitalism's hottest new trend popped up about six months ago, and people just can't stop talking about quiet quitting. What can be seen as Gen Z's first major contribution to the corporate workplace culture, it's quiet quitting, making the active choice to do absolutely no work than what is exactly required in your job description. I personally think that Gen Z is getting it off easy with the name quiet quitting because if it was millennials leading the charge, the headlines would all read did millennials kill the job question mark <laughs> quiet quitting a real thing or just a trend <laughs> first of all and i want to be clear i understand that what i'm about to say is the whole conceit of this podcast i cannot believe that was six months ago i truly can't <laughs> wow. i absolutely can't believe that quiet quitting something that is now so easily entered everyone's lexicon although and this is one thing i want to bring up is that i still think there's a lot of misinformation around what it's defined as and part of that is the name itself yes go off tell us about it the word quit just triggers something in so many people especially people who in a certain generation were taught you get the job you do the job for 40 (laughs) years you retire, you get the gold watch, and that's it. Like, yeah. quitting is seen as a bad thing. Like, it took my parents a while to understand that when I'm looking for new opportunities, it's not because I'm itching to quit a job. It's just me making sure that there's upward mobility in my overall career and life. And I love what quiet quitting actually is, is like you defined it, Chris. It's meant to be. I am no longer going above and beyond 
in a job that is not going to reward me for going above and beyond. If my job is from nine to six, I go in from nine to six, I do the tasks that are required of me, no more, no less, and that's all I'm gonna do because that's all I'm being paid for. And this is a job that either I don't want to be rewarded by doing more or the job, if I do more, is not going to reward me. And it's it's really, at the end of the day, to me, this is all a conversation about being having a healthy work-life balance and how many people realize, including myself, that we did not have that before the pandemic forced us to stop working. This is a audio medium, so you can't see this, listeners, but I am shaking my head feverishly in agreement. This is like hearing the hearing you say that, JW, is like, it's so true. And to me, it's like, I'm not quite quitting as in like, I'm not doing the work. Like I'm still doing work, but I'm just like not really going above and beyond for this company that's said they're only going to pay me a certain amount and I'm still going to get overlooked for any raises. And I still have to do the quarterly review where I get a one to five rating and everyone gets a three and one person gets a four and nobody gets a five. Bullshit. My parents, my dad has been in the same job in the same position for 30 years now. Literally 30 years of no upward mobility. And he fucking loves it. He's like, it's job security. I don't have to worry. I'm great at my job. And he is great at his job. The same job, the same role for more than like five years, I would lose my fucking mind. And he's done it six times that, 30 years. And what's interesting, though, is based on how you're describing your father's job, he may also technically for many, many years have been quiet quitting because if he knows it's a secure job that he is good at, he might just do what is required of that job. I don't know him. I don't know his work style. It's none of my business. But like, he mm-hmm. might actually be doing what this is actually defined as. But I bet if you were to tell him that, the phrase quiet quitting really triggers something in people because a lot of the discourse, and this is why it was so frustrating. And I know the people that wanted this to be the discourse are the bosses and the people mm-hmm. at the top. Because mm-hmm. they want you to work yep. more than they're you're paying. Yep. You're being paid. They made it seem like what people were doing because they're being too literal with the name. And hey, it's not the best name. With the name, they were saying that people were slowly and trying to be inconspicuous about quitting a job, doing less and less every day, basically no longer doing their thing, but being shh, quiet about it. And that is not what it was. That yeah. is just hating your job and not doing your job and seeing how long you can get away with it which if you want to do it go off but like which there are plenty of people who do that and you'd be surprised how long that lasts <laughs> yeah corporate america is full of people yeah who just like i but also it's a strange thing to me because i do not work in a job my main source of income is not a job where I work in an office when i'm on i am on and when i have days off i am totally off but I feel like the frustration, yeah, just coming out of the, coming out of the worst part of the pandemic, where it just became very clear, oh, at any moment you will be cut, yeah, and you will be thrown out of here, and absolutely no contribution you make matters because the second it's inconvenient for us, you're gone, and everyone's like, all right, then you sh- you showed us your cards, we'll show you ours. But I think, yeah, just. It, this idea of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and show up to work and work extra hard every day. And the, the question also becomes, am I working in a place with a product that I actually believe and care about? Amen. <laughs> you better preach. <laughs> because how many of us are actually doing that? I am. To anybody who is listening to this, who employs me, 
I am inspired every day when I go to work. Yes, if my employers are listening, I love what we do. <laughs> uh, no, but I, I also think that unfortunately that this all led to the most frustrating articles I've ever read, which are the no one wants to work. Did the pandemic cause nobody to want to work? And then what happened? People took jobs, and now at the time of this recording, we're seeing massive layoffs. Massive from layoffs. corporation from corporations. I pronounce that <laughs> corporation. <so. laughs> corporations. <laughs> New York's hottest club is corporations. <laughs> And there were all these things about, are people trying to stay on unemployment forever? And the answer is yes. <laughs> but, also, but it stops. <laughs> it runs out at some point. And I'm sorry, yeah, if you have a month left of unemployment insurance because you worked a job that then guaranteed you unemployment insurance and you want to be unemployed for one more month, let it run out and then get a job. Okay. Mm -hmm. The only reason yeah. this was ever became a thing was because all of a sudden everyone had to get unemployment insurance at the same time. And people who normally would never need unemployment insurance finally needed it. And it's it's money that we all paid into the system. It is yeah. there for us yeah. when something like this happens. Yeah. During the pan the height of the pandemic, I was living <laughs> vulnerable on vulnerable on pod. I was living with my parents. And basically for about six months i only hung out with people over the age of 65 and <laughs> it's not it is not their fault but it is just a thing where i'm like i'm like oh my gosh y'all have no idea none what it is like working working today you have absolutely no clue and i think once i kind of moved in with my parents and we were able to have some really good conversations i think you know they were able to see that more clearly uh but the majority i would say of I'm just going to say it. The majority of boomers, I would say, do not understand what the current corporate system is like and how there is ultimately at the end of the day, it feels like there is no reward for the right. work that you put in. Right. It's like it's it's almost like I'm going to say it because it hasn't been said enough on this podcast. It's just capitalism. It's just like toxic capitalism. And like at the end of the like, I think early on, like when our parents were, you know, our age and in the job force, like you got a lot of validation, you got a lot of praise. And now we have so many more avenues for validation and praise that we don't need it from a job. And also I think that like, that's right, we have Instagram. And also we don't look, alt I would say, I, 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 we have alt Twitters. I would say I don't look personally for validation anymore in my job whereas like i feel like my my dad who i'm sure is listening i love you is is somebody who like his pat on the head validation every year as he would tell us was like hey i got a two percent raise and my boss thinks that i'm good enough he's going to keep me on and i get a raise and i think that that our generation like that's just not happening anymore because we don't capitalism get is toxic race. <laughs> exactly we don't exactly. get yeah we don't get that two percent right i got a 50 cent raise this year oh point out the five zero <laughs> i went from a 15 dollar an hour to 50 15 dollars and 50 cents i mean you know plus tips but yeah you, you could know, buy a house with that just in the kind 70s. of like, i will say the the group thread was popping off yeah with champagne gifts that day <laughs> Chris, I hate to Matthew, but I do think that's technically more than a 2% raise. What? Oh, no. Yeah, because if it's $15, 10% of that's $150, so 1% of that is $0.15, cents, so 2% is $0.30. Cents. All right, Chris, you got to take so it back. You got to go back. 
you gotta say you're sorry. Do you want to just go ahead and say right now, sorry to all the I'm mathematicians listening? Crazy. I'm not saying it's not still crazy. I just sat here and I was like, oh no, I can't. <laughs> I need to be pedantic about this thing. How could you ever let math get in the way of our friendship? <laughs> JW is never getting invited back on this pod. This is capitalism. <laughs> it's what it's done to me. It's what capitalism has done to me. I'm the <laughs> I bet my math's wrong. Me too, learning how to do math makes me the victim in this situation. <laughs> <laughs> so what, I got a 3.5% raise? Yeah, you be that, thankful. Now, now, now I'm just... Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Better than Foster's dad. <laughs> I do think at the end of the day, though, the nice thing about the idea of quiet quitting and what it actually was, was people saying, look, I to exist in this society, I need money. To have money, I have to work. So I'm going to do this job and do what was asked of me, what is asked of me every single day, but I'm not doing more than that because I need the rest of my life to hold meaning outside of work. And whatever that means to you, whether that's spending more time with family and friends, whether that's hobbies, whether that's your anything else, that alt Twitter, making great content. Mm-hmm. It's whatever it is to people. And I think that's, I love the idea of it. I love saying, look, if you do exactly what is expected of you at your job and you do that stuff well, you don't need to do more and you shouldn't do more. Like that's fine. That's what a job should be. All right, we're gonna head on in to the final section of the show where we ask our guests, have we processed this? The first topic of our show, which was the monkeypox pandemic being declared by who? So have we processed this? The way you said that made me think that you were asking us who declared it. Yeah. Every time time you say who, it throws me a bit because when I see WHO in this context, I say, whoa. And so I'm like, really? I do. I don't know why. It's something wrong with me. But it's because it's the World Health Organization. So to me, it's whoa <laughs> wow <laughs> I, i'll i'll have a cor- bold and courageous opinion on this topic and i think that not only have we processed this i would suggest that our how we dealt with the monkeypox i'm talking about the gays specifically should be a blueprint yes for how yeah. for how this taking care of y'all it was only six months ago but it felt like it was so long ago because i feel like literally every single one person that i talked to especially in our community was like get vaccinated stay safe you know take make sure you're protecting yourself against any kind of potential infection be honest about it get tested like talk about it you know like all of the right things that we as a gay community have had to live through and figure out on our own the rest of the world i feel like just is afraid of science i don't know no i i I agree with everything you're saying i mean i think there's a reason that there's been studies that have come out and i don't know the level of validity in them that now hiv infection rates are actually higher in the straight community outside of the gay community and i think the reason is is that our community as a whole has had to be so aware Mm -hmm. of things like this that i was i was generally proud of us again i think it's a shame that as we discussed there was so much stigma associated with it 
And, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say that sometime with, with one of the three people that I knew got it, I wasn't like, well, of course. Like, and yeah. that's bad on me. Like, that's me stereotyping my friend who I knew to be more sexually active. And, but I think in that, a lot of us learn to get around the stigma. I mean, I did, fortunately. So I think not only do we process it, I think we, as a community, I think actually might have come out a little stronger afterwards. Yeah, I still I still have the marks from that scene on my arms, which is crazy because as we know, yeah, like we're all like showing it on Zoom, it's the gay dark mark. <laughs> and it's like if you if I'm sure if I went back and looked at our, our text messages between me and JW during that time, it was me like literally out in the wilderness being like, Oh no, what do I do? Because <laughs> I it was just it Holy. just suddenly became this fear of of like, oh my gosh, if I if I hook up with anyone mm -hmm. uh, anywhere, you know, where is this thing? Uh, but luckily, it does seem like the you know, like a like a herd of sexy triceratops. We rallied the troops, we protected the young and vulnerable, mm -hmm. and we got that vaccine. Yeah. Heading on to our second topic of the evening, we discussed the Trump raid on Mar-a-Lago. Gentlemen, have we processed this? It just feels like there's too many bones to process. If I'm being honest, you know, like it's just that it's hard for me to think that I feel like we as a group have definitely here tonight processed this. But as a whole, as a nation, as a population, I think that there's still some processing that needs to happen. What do you all think? What a what a, what a great segue. It was very radio uh, interview review, Foster. I love it. Listen, I'm a producer. I get shit done. Now, <laughs> now the group. I... I think that mostly we haven't processed it yet because it feels like it's still ongoing. Yeah. You know, as yeah. simple as that is that it's hard to fully process anything that doesn't feel like it's reached its conclusion. And, you know, again, like we discussed, it feels like every day, almost in a joking way, there's someone else who is seen having these classified documents. I hope that it's a little bit of a referendum overall on how we literally process classified documents and what that looks like and what that is full disclosure i am the kind of nerd that listens to a weekly podcast about the special counsel investigation that's currently going on with jack smith and the department of justice and the trump search of mar-a-lago and all i will say is this is it is very much ongoing and it's just wild and i think what is so frustrating to me and i think a lot of people is it's so clear that there are two systems of justice in this country mm. and it is just so frustrating because it's kind of like there is no way controversial but very statement there is no way that former president trump did not break some law at some point and that we have not been able to bring any of the forefront can't bring a damn thing Anything. but maybe that's because everybody at the department of justice and the fbi are quiet quitting which brings us to our final topic thank <laughs> <laughs> you so Boo. much chris papas <laughs> everyone lex lex the producer our producer literally turned on their camera to shake their head no at me for what i consider a perfect segue a into our segue, final, if you will, into our final a seamless segue. <laughs> but quiet quitting. Uh, does does Gen Z getting it right, or were we leading the charge on this? I think this is an interesting one because I think a lot of people did process this, did consider this, did consider how they are interacting with their job. 
I don't think greater society did. And again, it's 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 the the way we discussed it. I think that like it sounds like you did, Chris, I actually ended up having one or two really nice conversations with my parents about the difference in our generations and our jobs and our structures. So I'm glad it led to that. And I hope it led to that for more folks out there. But I, I think work-life balance is still something that is going to be an ongoing conversation for a long time. I'm glad we're having these conversations in earnest. And I'm even though I would never say I'm glad for the pandemic, I do like the fact that because a lot of people were affected in the same way, it allowed the playing field to even out just a little bit and everyone to feel similar emotional impact. And again, I'm not comparing people who were rich to people who did not have as much money, but it did get everyone kind of on the same page for having some work-life balance conversations in a way that I just think outside of a a global pandemic would not have been possible. Because we, it it is not, outrageous to say yes we all went through the same storm Mm -hmm. like it it happened to all of us on very we were all affected to varying different degrees but we all went through and are still some people are still absolutely in the thick of a of a pandemic Mm -hmm. and i think to the credit of people who are quiet quitting yeah it's just turning around and saying hey corporate culture is not what it was probably yeah. 40 50 years ago ain't what it 20 used to years be. ago two <laughs> percent is different these days two percent two percent i'll say that like for me um as one who very vulnerably uh, texted you all earlier this week that like i was quiet quitting on monday i found i find that it's it's to me as as somebody who is just very anti-capitalism and will always raise my flag anytime somebody tries to tell me that i should be taking my job more importantly than my life or my hobbies or anything else it's it's more (laughs) when i first discovered this i was like huh i guess i could get away with doing less so i would say for me personally i'm still processing my relationship to quiet quitting loving it so far as a tool against the machine and also if you have a job that you truly love and you want to be promoted within and you want to give more than a hundred percent in and you want to stay extra hours because you truly passionately love that job don't Quiet quit it. Do that. Amen. It's even easier now because other people are quiet quitting. So you can just race to the top faster. <laughs> Honestly, I'm working a job. I'm working a job the past two days that I fucking love. And I'm going above and beyond because I love this company. I love the people that I'm working with on this project. And it was just a different story on my earlier project. So like I said, tools and a tool belt. So yeah. I think we can all agree. <laughs> capitalism. Worth it when it's worth it. Perfect way to wrap capitalism. Up make episode. it work for you. <laughs> Make it work for you. Because I'm don't make me work. <laughs> All right. I want to thank our two guests, JW Crump and John Foster. All right. Gonna give y'all a quick second here to plug anything you want to plug. JW, anything that our listeners should be on the lookout to see you. Yeah, if you're listening and you're a fan of podcast, I am one of three hosts of Podleadum. That's top model podcast spelled backwards. It's an episode by episode, cycle by cycle recap review joke fest about the classic iconic show america's next top model and we just recently finished cycle 18 so you have over 200 episodes to enjoy if you haven't discovered us yet beautiful and john foster anything you'd like to plug here 
Uh, well, besides my alt Twitter, I have a uh, podcast of my own called Thicket and Thistle Podcast. It's where we talk about movie musicals available where you all find podcasts are available. Um, I've also re recently been doing a lot of work with a company that is going to start releasing some of the work that I've been doing with them. Uh, it's The Barn uh, out in L.A. They're doing uh, they're a movie musical production house. And they've brought me on for a couple of things and been writing for them, performing for them, producing for them. So um, I'm going to plug the barn. Check those guys out if you like movie musicals that are new and wonderful. Thank you so much. All right, everyone, go check those things out, because if you check them out, they'll be able to continue to make money and survive, because that is the system we live in. <laughs> and until next time, my name is Chris Pappas, and thank you for coming and processing this. 